My name is Chip Jacobs. I'm a uh, local author, and I'm, I'm lucky to be joined on this podcast with Jeremy Rosenberg, uh, who's had a long association with the USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. Um, the reason we're having Jeremy on today, besides him just being a, a smart dude and, and uh, very talented writer, is his latest book uh, called No Man is an Island with Chef T. George Laguerre. It's a rare bird books um uh, book uh, that just came out this year. Uh, but Jeremy has uh, done a lot of other stuff besides this book uh, with this very famous chef who has got a very uh, interesting backstory. He's also written a book called Kickoff Concussion with former USC star player, tailback Anthony Davis, as well as the award winning book Under Spring Voices Plus Art Plus Los Angeles, the latter coming out from Haiti Books and also being the first ever winner of the California Historical Society Book Award. And that's, that's pretty cool. Jeremy has uh, also written for the LA Times, um, the Los Angeles Magazine, Boston Globe, Salon, Orange County Weekly, the Art Newspaper, Forbes Autos, and many other outlets. Um, he's done some really great columns. That's how I first sort of got to know Jeremy, uh, including the Secret City for the LA Times, uh, old website or current website, um, as well as working for KCET um, on arrival stories and the laws that shaped LA and city slash culture. Um, Jeremy has also been named a 2009 Next American City Vanguard. So uh, he is a person that knows um, lots about lots about the secret stories and secret characters of Los Angeles. Jeremy, it's fantastic to be talking to you. Chip, it's a real pleasure to be on the, uh, on the podcast with you. I, um, if I tried to go over every amazing thing you've done, we'd be out of our 20 or 30 minutes a lot of time. So let me, uh, let me just read about a paragraph of uh, some of the uh, books you've put out recently, and then let's get into the uh, conversation. Please, uh, please you... go ahead. Flattery gets you everywhere. <laughs> All right. You are the author of, most recently, Strange As It Seems, The Impossible Life of Gordon Zoller, which came out, again, recently on Rare Bird. Um, You are also the author of five other books, as far as I can understand and recall, The People's Republic of Chemicals, which I admit, everyone, I have not yet read, but have sitting on the table, Smog Town, The Lung-Burning History of Pollution in Los Angeles, and both of those are with your collaborator, William Kelly, and Smog Town was one of my favorite books about Los Angeles about the environment um, and beautifully written and uh, period uh, just a stunningly great book and one that I recommended and bought for people and I think I have a signed copy here in fact from you uh, you also wrote the Vicodin thieves biopsing LA's grifters glory hounds and goliaths and another favorite of mine the ascension of Jerry murder hitman and the making of LA muckraker Jerry Schneiderman uh, also, one I wasn't familiar with, Chip, you can maybe tell me about it at the end of the call, the privately issued Black Wednesday Boys. And your reporting has appeared in the LA Times, the New York Times, on CNN, Bloomberg View, uh, the Daily News, LA Weekly, et cetera, et cetera. You've won so many writing uh, awards and honors and commendations that uh, there's no time to fit them all in here. But uh, everyone listening should know how um, deservedly decorated you are. And I think uh, I want to mention your website, chipjacobs.com. Well, thank you, Jeremy. Um, you know, uh, God, it sounds better hearing somebody else say it. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, Jeremy, uh, one of the premise, premises of, of this podcast is trying to get turning, turn people on to sort of your style of writing and your particular niche. 
And um, one thing that really, I think, separates you from a lot of nonfiction writers is, um, and this sounds uh, very campaign-y, uh, but I mean it in a more literary tone is you do, you really have a gift for giving voice to the voiceless. And, um, you know, by that, I mean, I don't think I've seen another writer in the LA Southern California area that knows how to sort of prod and poke subjects and get them to tell a story in their own idiom. There's plenty of people that can write a profile there's plenty of people that can do a third person, you know, typical, um, you know, life story. But, you know, uh, you just have a singular way of, of, of sort of giving uh, uh, like a core septic to people that otherwise have frogs in their voice. And, they, and it, <laughs> it, 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 it's told very well. I mean, uh, Jeremy, um, you know, wrote a really interesting book that I, you know, I'm – going to go back and reread about Anthony Davis, the, the former football star and his issues with concussion. Also, this book under Spring, which is sort of highlighting, uh, you know, artists and designers and free thinkers. And it, I just love how you, you, you don't have, you know, the typical writer insecurity where you have to, you know, uh, get in the way of somebody else um, describing your story. And that's an art, the art of listening. Um, so um, with all that said, I want to talk about your most recent book, obviously, No Man is an Island. And um, can, you, can, can you just keep complimenting me? I think we could just go on like that for a while. Yes, sure. And then that. Jeremy at 12 <laughs> discovered a new atomic particle. Um, and then at, thir- at 13, uh, he mm-hmm. conquered astral projection. But, um, right. you know, it, it had a half-life uh, of only six months, though. Yeah, you know, what can I say? Um, you know, um, what, what's really interesting about this book, No Man is an Island, I mean, the character is so, I don't know, uh, profoundly Los Angeles as a melting pot in that, you know, a, a kid who you would you never expect to become a world-famous chef made his way out to Los Angeles from, from Haiti. Uh, which most people don't know is shares an island with Dominican Republic off the coast of Florida, um, and you know um, he was he was you could not have figured out or, or predicted uh, this guy's trajectory. And um, D. George Laguerre is, you know, if you are anything connected to the food world, know the guy's a superstar and uh, famous for his roast chicken out of his restaurant in Echo Park. Um, I just, you know, I, just to give people a feel for this book, um, before I start peppering you with questions, Jeremy, I, I just did want to read one part of, uh, you know, of the front of the book uh, that also showcases your ability to get people to cough up their stories when they might not might not have otherwise. Talks sure. about his unu- unusual long name, and his his full name, by the way, is Jean Marie Montfire Hebert Georges Fizz. Laguerre, and I know I probably slaughtered <laughs> that pronunciation, and I'll let you go back. But this, this, <laughs> your, um, can you just, your Creole, uh, your Creole is lacking, I think. Can, yeah, can you just say his full name the way it should have been said in Creole? Uh, no, he can. Uh, when we have, when we do events together, I I set him up, and um, you know, uh, and then he corrects me. Um, but I uh, see. Jean Jean Marie Montfer Hibert Georges Fi Laguerre is my best uh, approximation of it. Okay, well, your your average pronunciation beats my failing go back to remedial school pronunciation. So, but this is this is his this is Jeremy and and his explanation for why they wrote the book. I received such a long moniker because I died at birth. Truly, 
the priest administered last rites. Then an injection brought me back, with the only side effect a youthful limp. In the meantime, the doctor, the nurse, my mother, my father, and in retrospect, what seems like every resident of Port de Pay, Haiti, was adding their own memorial contribution to the baptismal, baptismal certification that our city's hospital was preparing for me. And funny thing is, with all those names, I'm best known by something else entirely. People call me to George's. That's pronounced T. George's. It means son of George's, as in my father's name was George's. And by the way, George's is pronounced George, so I just screwed that up, as in President George Washington. I set up to prepare this book as a counterbalance to all the stories about Haiti that people outside the country have heard. Yes, Haiti has been for some time a troubled land, but if you're looking to read about political upheaval and plague and pestilence, and worst of all, some weird voodoo zombie nonsense. Let me tell you, this book ain't for you. That's really one of my favorite descriptions of any book I've read leading in. Um, so, so, Jeremy, you know, uh, there's so much to ask. How did you meet this character, and, and how, do you, how did your relationship with him develop? I met him before his restaurant opened. Uh, he was one of the first people I met here in Los Angeles. Um, he was uh, friends with the couple who I rented uh, space from in, um, in Silver Lake. I live in Echo Park now, but uh, when I first came out here, I lived in Silver Lake. And uh, there was this bohemian couple, she, a Mexican woman, he, an Italian man. Their friends were from everywhere but Los Angeles. So... Um, Seemingly every night, it was probably once every 10 days or so, there'd be yeah. an impromptu party, a dinner party, a house party, a, you know, a rent party, some kind of event happening at our place. And literally one day I came home and in my room was a guy from Haiti drinking a beer with um, my uh, Mexican uh, landlady, uh, Teresa. And, um, you know, they were looking, he was, she was giving him a tour of the place. And, uh, you know, when you come home and there's a guy in your room with a beer, well, <laughs> You got two options, you know, a fist fight or become fast friends. And uh, so uh, we we became friends. And, uh, you know, I was there early on when he opened up the restaurant. And then about, oh, I don't know, 2006 or seven, he came to me and said that he wanted to put out a memoir. And uh, is that something that um, I could help him with? And I had a job and I had other projects. And I said, uh, yes, you know, he's this irresistibly charismatic character. You described him, Chip, as world famous. And I was thinking to myself, I don't know if he's world famous in Echo Park, world famous in his mind, world famous in my mind, world famous in the world, but he's just an indomitably uh, charismatic guy. He holds court in his restaurant, which is in Echo Park uh, near downtown LA uh, in four languages. He hops around from table to table to table to table, speaking French and Creole and English and Spanish. Uh, some people I know, I know, go there just for the conversation and don't really care one way or the other about the food. Others obviously go there for the food. But uh, so I said yes to him. And over the course of a couple of years, whenever my schedule allowed, I'd bring a recorder, voice recorder, and uh, he'd uh, serve up some chicken and some acra and some pickles and some of the other foods there. And I would pepper him, like you said, I guess Scotch Bonet pepper him in the parlance of the book with uh, a lot of questions about growing up. And, uh, you know, he answered a lot of them. And, and that introduction you read, uh, reflects his interest from day one that he expressed, I don't want this to be another book about voodoo and another book about the Duvaliers and the horrors. And, you know, then I don't want this to be another book about the earthquake and Sean Penn. And, you know, so we cover that with an author's note at the beginning, uh, some of which you just read. But for the most part, 
he wants to tell sort of every man's, every woman's American dream immigrant story. And, um, you know, if you substitute Guatemala or Thailand or pick your country, right, this could be that person's story as well. But um, obviously, it's also a book that, that talks a lot about food and a lot about one particular country. And, you know, um, he's charismatic. I think, you know, when you Google his name, he sure he has a, a very large culinary footprint, if you ask me. Let me ask you, I mean, we've all, as writers, um, become fascinated by subjects and only to learn that they are, um, you know, the headline, the sub-headline they give their lives are a heck of a lot easier to uh, decipher and unpack than their actual story. Was it difficult getting the story out of him? Um, did he tell it in a... You know, did, were there any language barriers or logical issues? I mean, was he, you know, was was he a dream subject or was he challenging to, you know, find out about? Uh, dream subject, and um, he, um, you know, in all of our meetings, uh, we covered a lot of the same ground uh, over the course of a couple of years. Uh, it wasn't done like let's bang this out over a three month period. It was a much more friendly, casual, you know, gatherings uh, or series of gatherings we had to work on it. But uh, the book came out just as I wanted to and, and just as he wanted it to. And that was, uh, I think, as one review said, um, you know, uh, in a positive way, uh, a bit of a stream of consciousness. You know, yeah. Each chapter, yeah, each chapter for people who haven't read it yet is uh, the name of uh, an item on his menu. And um, each chapter then tells stories that are uh, both related to eating that food today, recipes or otherwise, uh, as well as stories that that food reminds uh, Chef T. George of from back in Haiti or from his adventures arriving in Brooklyn and going across country on, a, on a, one of those epic cross-country uh, journeys that, that people take. And he took in his, of course, pride and joy, a Renault Le Car. He had to have a, a that, was, that was his American dream was to, to get a Renault. <laughs> he I didn't, I didn't want to tell him that, that he was the only American who had that dream. But uh, <laughs> No, there's actually 17 Californians that drive a Renault. Uh, you know, and, 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 they're, and, and they, yeah, they, they're upset with the Peugeot owners as well. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. But, um, uh, I want to ask you this. About, big um, um, he, he, he is such a, I don't know, he, he just seems so, uh, he, there was no other place that would welcome him, it seems like, as Los Angeles. It just seems like if you bring in Manifest Destiny and a guy with culinary talent, they, you know, they just were a rendezvous waiting to happen. Um, you know, um, besides dying at birth, he had a really interesting life in Haiti, and his, his family was in the food business. Uh, obviously, he learned a lot by being at the apron strings of great cooks. Um, he, um, he also, you know, spent time in New York where his, his family moved, I, I think in the early eighties. Um, or can you, can you tell us about how his New York experience segued to his decision to come to LA? I mean, the guy drove a cab and mm -hmm. in one case almost got into this really horrible accident that probably would have torpedoed everything. How did the guy, how, you know, can you just give us if you can, uh, you know, uh, uh, a travel log and how he made the jump from this poor island to crazy Los Angeles. Sure, and uh, I know in a minute we got to talk about uh, Gordon Zoller, but when you mentioned T. George dying at birth, which uh, literally did happen, he was then uh, reanimated uh, with uh, 
a series of injections, uh, and that did affect him growing up. And to this day, I think still psychologically, he carries a burden from that, or or maybe a, a liberty from that. Yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, some of uh, Gordon's um, um, life and death moments, uh, including him once being thrown from a car and dying, if I remember correctly, and being turned in a certain direction and then literally being dead. I mean, that that was one of the the, the parallels that I saw between uh, between your new book and, and this one. But but just to briefly talk about T. George and his his own journey. Uh, his family had a bakery his, in back in Haiti. His father was in the coffee supply game for a while and even briefly was customs minister for uh, the entire country. But uh, since uh, politics can shift quickly there, uh, you know, that didn't last too long, that particular gig. But um, the most compelling uh, part of his biography for him back in Haiti uh, was the, the family bakery uh, that included, it was a broad definition of, of what a bakery is. Um, so it was a physical spot where they had a lot of rum, like 50 gallon, I think drums of rum in the back that his I think 10 year old brother and him would get a little drunk on at the time, you know, hiding out, playing hide and go seek. Sounds like a, a glorious house. You know, uh, yeah. Right. Um, and in the book, we tell some of those stories about, uh, not just being a drunk kid, but about, uh, you know, the sort of um, I will survive, do it yourself culture. Of, uh, and it wasn't an easy uh, life for them as immigrants back then. There weren't a lot of Hades in New York, Haitians in New York at that time. Right. And you mentioned the uh, how it makes sense that he would make it out here eventually. Uh, there aren't uh, too many Haitians uh, in Los Angeles. The diaspora, I think, in the LA Weekly's article about the book, they mentioned the census says 2,200 in California, 2,200 Haitians. George thinks wow. it's... Um, yeah, somewhere in that range. But um, you know, he could have stayed in New York, which has a lot higher number of, of Haitian expats. He could have gone to Miami, which obviously has a higher uh, number, you know, greater greater diaspora down there. But, um, but yeah, his uh, his he is one of those characters who was uh, inspired by film. Growing up, there was a Frenchman in town who showed movies and had George as a kid be a projectionist to help out in the theater. George came to uh, New York when he was, I think, 16 years old. And... Uh, his dream was to go to film school. It took him about seven years while he drove a cab, like you mentioned, couldn't get held up like everyone who drives a cab in New York at that point. Definitely, you know, at some point we did. Um, but he uh, spent seven years driving a cab to put himself through school. He went to the School of Visual Arts, Fine Arts, no, Visual Arts uh, in New York. I'm, I'm sure I botched up that name. No, 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 no disrespect intended, but. When he came out here, he had the idea that you just show up in L.A. and, hey, you'll be in the movies. But he had no connections, no nepotistic connections like Gordon, you know, was lucky enough to have in your book. Um, and George's language skills were fine, but not brilliant. And he found himself like sort of hanging around outside of a studio lot and, uh, you know, like a guy at the Home Depot looking to get picked up to do day labor. But that didn't work for him, not surprisingly. So. He had worked at a church's fried chicken, as he tells people in, at our book events, and they respond with a mix of awe, horror, and glee, depending who they are. And uh, he realized, hey, there's a market for, for chicken in the U.S. of A., and um, why don't I uh, combine my passion for uh, my country? All of the skills I gained at the, at the hip of my grandmother, Susanna, who sold the, 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 his uh, home city's famous squash soup and ran a bakery, and who, by the way, only learned two words of English in her life, which were fried fish. Uh, that's another story in the book. But, uh, you know, anyway, he, um, he, uh, he basically was, 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 like you say, manifest destined to come out to L.A. where the land of flakes and nuts and eccentric characters and, and, and creating his own brand of cuisine, which isn't purely Haitian, but it's Haitian plus rotisserie chicken. So, uh, but, he's, he's, but it's so he's extraordinary. Like a lot of people that... we know here. 
and it's, I'm sorry to cut you off, but it's so extraordinary. I mean, you know, uh, this is not a guy who went to some famous culinary institute and, you know, worked for five years, <laughs> moving his way up from sous chef right. to whatever. You know, it's a guy that just, you know, he, he brought, the he brought, you know, uh, right. by the mouthful to Los Angeles. And also, what... There's a great in, there's a great anecdote in a book about how he came to Los Angeles, where he picked up a hitchhiker. They didn't have a lot of money. They're in the Reno. They uh, run out of you know they run out of dough. They can barely afford gas to get across the Rockies. At one point, his hitchhiking friend uh, gets involved with a couple girls. He thinks you know. Uh, George thinks he's going to get rolled. He doesn't get rolled. <laughs> and then even when he, you know, I'm, just to wind it up, you know, he, so many uh, unlikely things happen to make him the success he is, including finding special avocado wood, an inexhaustible supply of it, up in the Santa Barbara area, him getting a cooker from a guy from Texas that he does, takes a leap of faith to acquire. Um, you know, I love stories like this where there's a bit of magic, like the angels are circling right. around him saying, <laughs> you know, you've suffered enough. It is your time, you know, to show the world what you have. So, uh, you know, it's a, we made it's, a, it, it, it's, an, it, it's an, it's an eccentric, you know, and somewhat eclectic book, but it's very, his, you know, uh, his accomplishments are very universal. We'll shift over to Gordon in one second here, but, uh, but Chip, I got to say that, um, I got a big smile on my face because uh, that you mentioned the hitchhiker, and, and by the way, they were selling their own plasma, you know, to make it across the country as they ran out of money. And, but I'm smiling because uh, uh, the two girls you mentioned, the the hitchhiker finds two girls, and it's a sure thing for for you know four young people on an exciting, you know, they're one's going one direction, the other going another. They meet by the Grand Canyon, and uh, George loved that aforementioned Renault Le Car so much that. Uh, he uh, declined a sure thing with um, the beautiful girls he met out on the ro- open road, um, you know, which is a movie in itself, right? Uh, because he wanted to stay safe and sound with the Renault. He didn't want he didn't want to get rolled, like you say, by the hitchhiker or anybody else. So he could have been a Creo right. Jack Kerouac, but he didn't, you know. He yeah. he, he, he you know he fell in love with the car, like the Queen song says. So. Exactly, exactly. So, um, all right, look, you said unlikely and and eccentric, and we talked about dying at birth. Um, Those all could also apply to this amazing, amazing, amazing protagonist and family member of yours, uh, Gordon Zoller. Um, Let me uh, me read just one out of a zillion things I underlined. And okay, I shouldn't exaggerate and say a zillion, but but literally as I flip through the book, I have... I, I, I honestly, God, I, I, um, I, I burned out a uh, orange highlighter. An orange highlighter went dead on me, and I had to switch to a blue one. There were so many things I underlined as great line, great line, great line, um, foreboding, foreboding, or something I don't normally acknowledge out in public, but in this case, I must. I cried seven different times, or at least teared up seven different times, and I was marking all those places that I did. So we can get into some of that later, but let me just read the beginning of chapter eight, this one paragraph here. This is called Chapter Eight, Silly Oddities from Chip Jacobs' new book, Strange as It Seems, The Impossible Life of Gordon Zoller. The casts were flying off at the house on Laurel. Just as Roses was being sought off, a lengthy immobilization was being arranged for Gordon. A full-body plaster of Paris wrap was slated for him after an operation at St. Luke's, where the Zoller should have received a frequent customer discount. Gordon's glass, jaw, and spine still required fusing. 
Without the procedure, Dr. Risser predicted, a significant jarring could re-break his neck, this time lethally. Risser supposedly asked Gordon how he preferred to be soldered. In a V-like sitting position, awkward for sleep but better for action, or laid flat. Gordon voted for the V. Without this reinforcement, there would be nothing keeping him upright. He'd slump forward like a jellyfish if he ever made it to a chair. I mean, that's a paragraph in a 350-page book. I literally could have just closed my eyes and found anything. But uh, I thought uh, that was such a piece of descriptive writing. You, throughout the book, Chip, don't just say, and then someone died, or then they went to the hospital again. You have these magnificent ways, uh, stylish ways, stylized way of, of telling the story that um, – that, uh, you know, you didn't have to make it that good. So um, I know that your background as a journalist means you know how to dive deep and dig deep and and to get details. But, man, how did you get so much, how did you get such a great level of detail uh, that that you were able to infuse with your stylist writing? Um, Well, thank you so much for, uh, you know, your description and and, your affection for the story. You know, this is a story out of the, my family. Gordon was my uh, maternal uncle. Rose, as you mentioned uh, in the passage, was my grandmother. Um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, it's not easy going from being a daily journalist to being, quote, an author. And, and the way that I, over time, tried to make the transition was simply to knock all that journalism formality out of me. Um, and, you know, not just say somebody was a certain age, but described, you know, how life had affected them up until that point. And, um, more, more than anything, just try to write visually. Somebody told me that a long time ago, you paint the picture for your readers and, you know, make it so what their you know, make it so their mind starts playing a cinematic uh, image and role of, of what's going on. And so that's what I did try to do and, and trying to do more and more of everything I write, just write visually, even though, you know, you're writing on a page, you want it to jump out at people. And so they have an investment in the characters. Um, you know, I should say, you know, this is a story I've been working on a long time. It's one, my mom who passed away a few years ago, um, badgered me and encouraged me to write. And, um, you know, like all things, every, every bit of knowledge, every time I learned the story and facts better, the more confident my, my voice became as an author. So, you know, all those words took a long time to put together. And uh, my first draft wasn't very good. But over time, and, and as I let myself go and took more chances with my writing, you know, it sort of evolved into that. Now, I think we better back up and um, between the two of us, give a little bit of background for anyone who doesn't know this incredible story know what it's really about uh, right and maybe that is a way to segue also into how you were able to get detail after detail after detail I mean in smog town and um, for example in the ascension of Jerry you know some of that is public record and some of that is original reporting and you know so I'm yeah. sure there was a combination there but also the familiar familial for you um, you know was it was a great source in this book but uh, let me start by trying to describe uh, Gordon Zoller and you better jump in and and take over because I don't think uh, um, you know, I could in an hour do justice to what an, an amazing uh, uh, and totally unexpected life this guy lived. Um, he was your your uncle, right? Uh, and at age 14, I believe, as a daredevil kid who was not known to get great grades in school, but was known to possess a great intellect uh, and and certainly um, a mischievous side to say the least, suffered a horrible uh, accident where he was um, uh, made a quadriplegic, and. Yet, despite uh, the era that was, that would have been, what, 1942 40. or so? 
1940. Um, the prognosis you know, for someone with that horrifying injury at that age you know, wouldn't be great for living, much less for thriving. I think the doctors gave him just two weeks to live at the time, if I remember correctly. And anyway, he made it until what, 19, the mid, I don't know, should I give away the end? Uh, he, he made it. Uh, he lived time. a lot. He, yeah, I mean, it would be ridiculous to shove that math in front of the doctors, the grim faced doctors. He said he doesn't have a chance and, you know, say your right. prayers. Yeah, he he, and he didn't he didn't just live. He lived with capital L I V E. I mean, he became a major player in Hollywood uh, through force of personality, intellect, cleverness, um, uh, inventive ideas. Um, you know, he he married a beautiful woman. Um, he um, he was he was uh, his his adventures took him around the globe, including uh, repeatedly to Africa. I mean, it's it's. Absolutely amazing what this guy accomplished, and and in your book you describe him as a Gumpty and Forrest Gumpty in character. I mean, there there are meetings with presidents of countries, you know, plural, and with studio executives, and Woody Woodpecker makes an appearance, or his his, his creator. I mean, it just goes on and on. There's sort of like if you, if Gordon could be a, a mathematical equation, that it would there would be an inverse relationship between the his body weight and puniness in general. Uh, tinderbox health and uh, the degree to which he lived in a way. And, uh, you know, if you look at a picture of him, his head always looks just so monstrously, monstrously oversized for his body. And that's a result of, you know, not having normal biology. Uh, and also maybe a sign that he, he, you know, just packed so many ideas and plans and adventures in there. It just, his noggin got bigger. And, um, you know, he, um, he, he, Jeremy said that perfectly. Um, I knew him when I was a child before he passed away, uh, both as a, a very voluble, somewhat scary character. And then later, you know, um, an uncle who could be brusque, not all that happy to see kids around, um, someone losing their magic, um, but not prone to complain and talk about it, but just enigmatic. And, you know, I was a pallbearer actually at his funeral, and uh, in my teenage mind, I was glad the guy was gone, and that sounds terrible to say. Only later would I discover, you know, he was the most miraculous, infuriating, interesting, and accomplished person in the family lineage. And we, and we had a lot of successful Hollywood people in, in that background. And uh, there was something just so irresistible about him. And it's ironic that the first book I, I wrote after leaving Daily Journalism, even though I still did freelance work, it really sort of taught me not just how to approach being an author, but how to approach being a man. And uh, uh, Gordon is like that trans, trans, transcendental uh, reference point. Anytime you start feeling sorry for yourself, just go back and look at a picture of him at 15 after he survived the unsurvivable and was back home, and he looked like he was just wasting away into his uh, orthopedic bed. Uh, he weighed almost nothing, and his arms and legs looked almost like a snowman, snowman leg. Um, so uh, he really had a remarkable story, and I'm sure that through my life I was preserved so I could tell it, and it was the most unlikely pairing. I um, I found myself at different times, Chip, uh, thinking about your family 
in uh, in the same breath as the Kennedy family. I uh, went to school in Massachusetts and spent a summer uh, working a summer job at the JFK Museum and Presidential Archives, uh, doing some historian uh, work as a kid, you know, junior historian work. And uh, you know the 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 highs and the tragedies that that family had. Um, I know that there's not one-to-one parallels with the Zollers, but uh, man, there were a lot of um, untimely deaths uh, among family members and illnesses and, you know, tragedies throughout this. Um, is that because you are such a, a great stylist as a writer that um, you brought what every family experiences and made it seem uh, so catastrophic? Or is that because this family really did uh, get hit with a hell of a lot of those tragedies? I think it. I think it's the latter. You know, I just think it was waiting there all along to be discovered, like something buried in the earth, and it was my fate to pick up the dirt and, and look at it and dust off, dust it off, and and clean it off, and say, oh my God, what is this thing? And put it under the microscope. He, um, uh, people in my family had this had this habit of uh, of con- conquering a lot of adversity. And then getting killed, or at, at, at the same age on the same day of the year. One one example is my uh, uncle's uncle, who was once a very famous um, uh, Hollywood director for Universal Pictures, the prodigy of Carl Lemley, roommate of Irving Thalberg, really giant names in the motion picture business. He was killed um, about four or five miles away from where Gordon Lake County General Hospital. Um, um, back in the months after Gordon spill at this gymnasium and my grandmother, this is her brother. She just must've wanted to wander off in the desert and ask God, what is next? Because no matter what they did, there always seemed to be something, a bullet flying, a death notice being printed. And the more I looked at Gordon's life, the more I realized he had this incredible obligation to outlive the expectation and be the male forebear that was going to prove all the critics wrong and all the cynics wrong. So on these little shoulders, and if you look at a picture of him, he almost has no shoulders uh, looming uh, above his giant head or below his giant head. You know, you really realize he was sort of marked by the stars to do something big in his life, though he weighed 95 pounds. And when he went to Africa, you know, one foul titsy fly could have, you know, killed him. So, you know, I just think I, it was, I just think I was picked to tell this story and, um, you know, it's sad and it's bitter and it's also triumphant. And I like things that are a lot of different characteristics. Well, for everyone uh, listening, uh, you can go to rarebirdbooks.com, rarebirdbooks.com, see their brand new uh, logo, which I hadn't seen until now, looks sharp. Everyone I know. Over there. And uh, and can get uh, Chip Jacobs' uh, most recent book, which we're talking about now, Strange as It Seems. Uh, and right below that, on the uh, on the homepage, you can see No Man Is an Island, which is my book with Chef T. George Laguerre. I found uh, a handful, uh, if not more, of similarities to uh, T. George's attitude, you know, in um, in in Gordon Zoller's attitude, and. Uh, um, in part, uh, we, we did with the great illustrator Chandler Wood, who did the cover of my book, which is an illustration that I like as much as I like Sam Wall's illustration on your book. Both of these are have have, have covers that have uh, have great artists making making nice illustrations. Um, in the end of this four-minute uh, animation we did, which we've chopped down to 15-second bits for Instagram as well, George says, "Us Haitians 
we do what we got to do. And uh, that's um, an unofficial motto, along with let me tell you of, of, of Chef T. George. And, you know, I think um, Gordon did Zoller was more than we do what we got to do in life. But in the same way that uh, nothing stopped Chef T. George from getting here to L.A. and of opening his restaurant and living what his dream was, uh, it seems like nothing could, could hold Gordon back as well. And I think Gordon dreamed bigger, though I think that that may be um, in part because he came from a family that had been in that industry and, and was the dreams that he had, had had in front of him at the dinner table as a kid, you know, may have been greater than, than the dreams T. George or Anthony Davis or some of the characters you know, who I've written about elsewhere have had. But all of these people have in common that they're, uh, and I say this as a compliment, but quixotic, they are, um, uh, you know, they're, they're considered eccentric by some people, but they are charismatic individuals who set out to accomplish something and they're both, and they're also both, and yeah, and just to piggyback on your words, literally right there, sorry about that, but they're both fearless, you know, mm-hmm. and, and there's a lot to be said about being fearless, about not realizing the giant that you're irritating or the field you're going into. Um, you know, both, uh, go, my, you know, as you mentioned, my uncle actually did die if you measure by heart stopping or respiration being suspended several times in his life, just like, you know, George at, at, at his birth. And it just means that something big was planned for them. Um, I, I would be remiss, Jeremy, not to ask you, where are you? You must be cooking up something next. Are you looking for your next, you know, incredible character to profile? Or, or what are you doing <laughs> these days on the literary front? Well, what, uh, what comes next for me is uh, in a book called Los Angeles Revival, How Downtown L.A., has changed for the better and for the worse. And that's going to be a follow-up to Under Spring, which tried to tell a history of Los Angeles, but as told through the lens of about a thousand square feet under the North Spring Street Bridge that featured, I think, 67 different characters from uh, uh, politicians to homeless people and taggers and great artists um, and famous artists uh, and everyday citizens walking their dog down by the LA river next to the train tracks in the historic center of of the city. And that, um, that book dealt with all sorts of topics, environmental, um, ethnographic, what is public space. So I'm basically expanding that now into uh, a look at how downtown LA has changed, especially since the 1999 law that passed, um, which uh, allowed old time buildings to be uh, reused. The adaptive reuse ordinance uh, was what it was called. So um, anyone listening who has a suggestion for who I ought to interview who could give me great anecdotes about downtown back in the day or downtown today, uh, you know, hit me on Twitter at at most Jeremy. And uh, what are you working on, Chip? Um, and also, Jeremy, you you uh, I think you you're doing so many things you probably forgot. But you're also going to be in a great anthology that um, <laughs> uh, uh, about the '70s that Rare Bird is putting out called Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine. <laughs> Sorry, Rare Bird. Sorry, David Kukoff. Yep. Right. Thanks for thanks for saving me. That comes out when August first or so. That comes out in August, and I know it's gonna. You're gonna do something on. You're gonna. Um, you're gonna uh, contribute a uh, uh, story about Anthony Davis, who I was one of my idols when I was a child, and has a really fascinating, um, complex story that most people do not know about. Um, I am currently um, working on. Uh, a screenplay based on my true crime book called The Ascension of Jerry. I'm working on that with a, a really uh, excellent screenwriter named Corey Tynan. I'm also um, just in the middle of doing research for my first novel, which 
um, I've been planning to do for several years, and it's about um, Pasadena, a 1913 historical novel set around the tragic and remarkable construction of the, path of the Colorado Street Bridge, a.k.a. Suicide Bridge. And the book is about reincarnation, progress, whether inanimate objects can reflect malevolent human uh, intentions, and a lot of fun with beer and Wrigley gum. So uh, it's meant not to, it's meant to be poignant. And it's meant to also make you laugh. So well, you know we're both we're we're both exploring Los Angeles as she exists. We'll have to do another podcast uh, since uh, you know um, you're going to add to the pool of knowledge uh, that I gained um, in researching Merrill Butler and the City Beautiful movement for for Under Spring, which was uh, the North Spring Street Aqueduct or bridge was or viaduct I should say the North Spring Street viaduct or bridge was built if I remember in 1928, but. Wow. Uh, yeah, and then there are a handful of ghost stories in there and uh, lots of great pictures and uh, inclusions of, of old blueprints of, of various bridges. So uh, I'm hooked. It's a story about any bridge. I'm a sucker for that. You, David McCullough, anyone else who's got a bridge book, I'm in. <laughs> All right. Well, um, Jeremy, um, thank you so much uh, for, for coming on the podcast. I, I know we uh, zipped around the universe of our subjects, and um, let's reconnect again. And everybody, please check out um, Jeremy Rosenberg. He is, in my opinion, uh, one of the really unsung great writers of Los Angeles. No Man is an Island is the book. If you think you know Haiti, you think you know immigrant stories, you haven't met our friend Georges. So please, please check out the book. You can find it on Amazon.com, Barnes and Noble, and also learn more about it at RareBird.com, where my recent book, Strange It Seems, has also been published. So, um, Jeremy, any final words or? You know, no, thanks, did. Chip. Um, and uh, of course, uh, since RareBird is an independent press, we should give a shout out to all the great uh, independent bookstores in LA and otherwise, where you and I have had respectively and hopefully soon together events and readings. So. Uh, if you're listening, uh, you know, go to your local indie bookstore uh, as well. And don't get too mad at Amazon.com. They're trying. They don't mean to crush everything else. So we're just kidding. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, um, so um, thank you so much, and um, we will talk to you on the next podcast.